Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. It turned out that Pastor Daniel was correct. Last week I was overly ambitious. And this week we'll finish off um, the passage that we began um, and get about halfway through the total passage. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 or 72, depending on what your Bible translation says. And last week we looked at the beginning of that commission. This week we'll finish the commission, and the next week we'll look at their return and the Lord's response and their response. But I'd like to begin by just reading this passage in its entirety. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so in those... 24 verses. We have the commissioning and sending of the 72, 
We have the return and the report. And last week, as we began to look at this, we, we understood that Jesus has now turned and has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. We see that in chapter 9, verses 51 and 53. This is the turning point in Luke's gospel of Jesus' ministry. Up until this point in Luke, Jesus has been ministering in and around the Galilean region, near where he grew up. And now, starting in 951, he is heading to Jerusalem. He's heading for that final Passover where he will be our lamb. Where he will be crucified and handed over into the hands of sinful men. Now he's going to take his time getting there and he won't necessarily take a direct route. But for the next 10 chapters, Luke is narrating this progression towards Jerusalem. And it began with a call to discipleship and a further refinement of our understanding of what it means to be a disciple as three people along the road offer excuses for why they don't come immediately. And we learned that to be Jesus' disciple, we we have to be willing to follow him and forsake all other things. Our loyalty to him must be greater than any earthly loyalty. And we cannot hesitate, cannot be continually looking back. And then Jesus selects 72 of his disciples, his followers, presumably men who have met this qualification, and he sends them out. And he multiplies his ministry. What once was one itinerant preacher, then had become 12 of his disciples in, in the beginning of chapter 9, now is, is exploded into 72. And Jesus laments that there aren't even more, that this is still insufficient for the harvest. And he sends them out and he commissions them, telling them what to do. They have a message of peace. And they speak for God. Jesus makes this clear at the end of the passage we'll be looking at today. In verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. So when they enter into a house and say, peace be on you, this is God's offer of peace. This is the gospel offer of peace, which is why Jesus makes it clear that when it is received by a son of peace, it truly rests on them. They've received God's peace. Our passage this morning begins to hinge as Jesus contemplates not those talents that will receive, but those talents that will reject. See, even though they have a message of peace, when they are rejected, and we looked at this briefly last week, they're to shake the dust off their feet. Verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God is drawn near. See, one way or the other, as, the, as these men go out, the kingdom is advancing. The kingdom is drawing near. And it can draw near as envoys of peace and ambassadors of peace offer peace. And it can draw near as an army draws near. And regardless of whether the towns receive their report or not, God's kingdom is drawing near. But as Jesus thinks of that, it then hinges in his thought to these woes, beginning in verse 12. I tell you, It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Then he goes into pronouncing specific woes. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And it's verses 12 through 16 that we'll be focusing on this morning. As Jesus pronounces woes to those who reject Jesus 
and his word. Woe to those who reject Jesus and his word. In our passage, Jesus pronounced woes on the unrepentant cities. Now, this is a shocking report, a shocking report if you've been reading Luke's gospel. Now, of the three towns that he names, two of them have featured in Luke's narrative. We're not, Chorazin has, has not shown up in Luke's gospel, but Bethsaida has. That was outside of Bethsaida, was where Jesus fed the 5,000. And we have nearly an entire chapter of Jesus ministering in Capernaum. And if you've been following along in Luke's gospel, you'll note that the response seemed to be largely positive. As crowds were getting more and more excited, as the people brought their sick to Jesus, as they were amazed at the power and the authority of his word. I mean, unlike his hometown in Nazareth where they tried to kill him when they heard his message. No, no mention of that going on in these towns. And yet as Jesus finishes his Galilean ministry, sets his face towards Jerusalem, here we receive his final word and summary on the region that he's been ministering for for the entirety of Luke's gospel thus far. And it is shockingly negative and in absolute terms. So we're going to look at this in three points. Let's begin point A. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And there's the principle. And that is a shocking indictment. In the Old Testament, surely no town had a greater notoriety for sin and wickedness than Sodom, given over to the, to the sin of homosexuality and the attempted gang rape of the angelic visitors. This is a wicked town. And, and God destroyed and judged them in, in a spectacular way unrivaled in the Old Testament of judgment. And so Sodom took on this, this reputation. It became a byword of, of the wickedest of the wicked. And Jesus says, the town that rejects his disciples that he is sending out, not even him personally present, just the town that rejects the people he sends is going to be guiltier and worthy of greater condemnation on that day. That day, of course, referencing the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Obadiah 1.15 says this, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. The day of judgment. And what Jesus says, and this is this, you just get this, all this town does is just not want to hear what Jesus' messengers say. They're not necessarily engaged in rampant wickedness, drunkenness, or whatever. They just don't want to hear what these messengers say. And Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. I'll let that sink in. Because again, we tend to think that the greater sins are the sins that hurt other people, the horizontal sins, the sins that we can see the effects, and truly we can. We can see the, the damage done to others through murder, assault. We, we can see all of that, and we can see the victims and the carnage. And yet again and again, the Bible insists that it's the horizontal sins most offend God. I mean, after all, who most offended Jesus on earth but the, the hypocrites and the self-righteous? Here, 
To whom much is given, much is required. Now that principle has already been introduced in Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 7, verse, um, no, sorry, Luke chapter 8, 18, we've already heard Jesus warning his disciples, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. And a little later in Luke, we'll get there in, a, in another month or so, Luke chapter 12, verse 48, 47 to 48, Jesus gives this example. The servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severer beating. The one who did not know and did not, um, and did what was deserving of a beating will receive a light beating. To everyone who is given much, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And he's giving the example of a master who leaves a servant in charge of his house. To one servant, he tells him what he wants the servant to do. The servant disobeys. The other, he didn't receive instructions. He should have known what to do, but he didn't. Obviously, the one who is given more information is worthy of greater judgment. That's the principle here. And for all of Sodom's wickedness and all of their sin, they did not receive as much divine information and revelation as these towns to whom Jesus is sending the 72. That's the basis of the judgment. The other basis of the judgment is the importance of who Jesus is. I mean, there's an implicit Christological claim here. Rejecting the message about Jesus, Jesus says, is greater than the grossest, violentest group sin you can imagine. That's a bold claim on Jesus' part. What he's saying to his 72 is, whoever rejects you, and in doing so rejects me, is that town will be guiltier than Sodom. And in the judgment, it'll be go easier on Sodom than for them. It's a tremendously bold claim. Which brings us to point one. Rejecting Jesus and his word is the greater sin. Rejecting Jesus and his word is the greater sin. The reason why I focus on his word as well is look at verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. Jesus himself isn't actually going to these towns yet. He's sending them on ahead of him, ahead of his face, like John the Baptist, to, to announce that he's coming. And so these people, are, these towns are primarily going to be dealing with words, words about Jesus. And of course, that hearing imagery brings to mind what Jesus had to say back in chapter 8. Turn back to chapter 8. It all comes down to hearing and how one hears, right? Verse 8 he speaks about the parable of the sower. Some fell on good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came to him and asked him what the parable meant. He said to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And then as he goes through and unpacks the, the parable of the sower, in each instance, each type of soil, Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Verse 13, the ones along the rock are those who, when they hear. Verse 14, as for what fell along the thorns, they are those who hear. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in a faithful, in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And then verse 18, what we'd already considered, take care then how you hear. Verse the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. A lot depends then on how you hear. And what does God the Father say of Jesus when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, glorified? This is my beloved Son, 
my chosen one. Listen to him. So Luke has been emphasizing the importance of how we hear. Be careful how you hear. He's sending out 72 messengers. And he tells them, the one who hears you, hears me. Consequently, the one who rejects them rejects Jesus. Rejecting Jesus and his word is the greater sin. Too much is given, much is required. And that that's, that's, makes us uncomfortable because we're sitting right now in this very moment under God's word. We're reading and looking at God's word. That then means that we are responsible for more. It's so easy for Christians to want to point our fingers to a godless culture and, and point out sin and wickedness and and things like that. And there, there can be times and places to do that, to be a witness in our culture, but understand, what, what we do with God's Word and the guilt we could incur because of our failure to respond trumps anything going on in the culture. That's what Jesus says. It'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for the town that rejects them. The second point is because spiritual privilege increases our culpability. Spiritual privilege increases our culpability. Now, there's some information about God that's been given to all men everywhere. For instance, the knowledge of conscience, accusing and excusing, is given to all people everywhere. There's, there's no person to whom this grace, this knowledge of God and His law is not given. Likewise, Psalm 19 makes it clear that the evidence of God and His glory and His wisdom and His, His masterful power coordinating the universe is given to all people. There is no eye that has not seen. There is no ear that has not heard. Their message goes out to all the world. So God has indiscriminately given to each and every man, woman, and child on planet Earth the knowledge of conscience, the knowledge of Him in creation. But He has not given the knowledge of His Son and His Word to all people. Right now, as we speak, missionaries are working at getting the gospel to unreached people groups. So we have a tremendous privilege in, in, in having this message. Not only do we have this message, we have, according to Jude, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have the complete message. Even in Jesus' day, the 72 that he sent out could only say he's here and he is the Christ. Repent, believe in him. But the cross hadn't happened yet. The resurrection hadn't happened yet. The Holy Spirit being given to the church had not happened yet. We have a more complete story. We have a better vantage point to understand what was taking place. We have Paul's epistles explaining significance of what was going on. Spiritual privilege increases our culpability. This is the reason why the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 2, two verses 2 through 3. Now listen to this. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. The whole point of the argument is this. Since God furnished such credible, testifying works to his message, there's no way we can escape judgment if we neglect that. It's not even reject it, just neglect. Just leave it for later, for another day. I'll get around to that. I'll get around to figuring out what I make of Jesus and his word some other time. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, I can imagine one possible escape route you can be thinking. 
Jesus makes it clear, and he connects the witness to the mighty works done. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And you're thinking, okay. But, but Jesus fed thousands of people. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus performed many mighty works. That's why they're guilty, and therefore I'm not as guilty as them, because I haven't seen those works, so, so I'm off the hook. Turn, turn to Luke chapter 16. You will see about that. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the parable of the story. People argue about whether it's a historical story or a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I trust you're familiar with it. I want to focus on the second half of the, of the story or parable where the rich man is in hell and in torment and he begins a dialogue with Father Abraham. So Luke chapter 16 Let's pick it up in verse 27. Rich man then says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man in hell is desirous that his brothers not join him there. Okay? You following so far? And what's going to be discussed here then is his Strategy for evangelism in Abraham's. Okay? Abraham said, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So the rich man, I, I want an, an evangelism strategy where resurrected people go around sharing this message. And if a resurrected person that they knew, because Lazarus would recline at the gates of the man's house, so they would have seen him going in and out. If this person they knew was dead came and told them and warned them and called them to repentance, then they, they would listen. He says, hey, they got, they got Moses and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. Let them listen to that. Verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If I'd seen those miracles, I'd believe. If I'd seen Jesus feed 5,000, then I'd really believe. If I'd seen that widow's son raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter raised up, then I'd believe. Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. God's word has more power, more authority than any miracle you could think of. And that means our responsibility for those who have God's word, who hears God's word, is raised all the higher. Spiritual privilege increases our culpability. We have God's word, we have the complete revelation. We, in this room, have the greatest culpability. And what we do with God's word is of the greatest priority. Okay? To whom much is given, much is required. That's the first principle we see. Second principle we see. Saving faith includes genuine repentance. Saving faith includes genuine repentance. Now, at this point, I want to stop and consider what went wrong. What went wrong? in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Like I said, we, we don't know much in Luke's Gospel about Chorazin, but we have a whole chapter devoted to Capernaum, and we know about events that took place next to Bethsaida. 
And what I'm going to suggest to you is this. I'm going to try to argue over the next few minutes that, that whatever other things accompany faith, one indispensable and necessary element of saving faith is genuine repentance for sin. And that is what is demonstrably absent from these towns. In fact, that's what Jesus emphasizes. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in um, in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Jesus highlights that repentance as what is missing. So, so turn back with me to Luke chapter 4. Actually, turn back to chapter 3. How does God prepare his people to receive his son? What message does he send ahead? What word does he deliver in advance of his son? There are so many things he could say. I love you. I care for you. Preparing a great place for you. Luke 3.3. 3. He went about in all the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's the message of John. It's univocal in all the Gospels. He called the Israelites to repentance for sin, to come and recognize their, their uncleanness, to be washed ritually, to demonstrate their need of cleansing. But jump ahead to chapter 7 now. I'm going to pick up on something here. Pastor Daniel taught this passage about John the Baptist, and he's in prison, and he sends messengers to Jesus. Look at verse 28, chapter 7. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now get this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Why? Having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Who were the people in this passage receiving Jesus' message? Who were the ones who rejoiced when they heard what Jesus said? In this passage, only those who had previously repented of their sins under the ministry of John the Baptist and been washed. We see how John's ministry of repentance prepared people for Jesus. And we see here, who are those who rejoice in what Jesus says and who are those who don't? Those who received John's baptism. So turn back now to Luke chapter 4 as we, we look at this. Because this is really stunning. Jesus gets rejected in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. They try to kill him. They try to push him off a cliff. But then he goes to Capernaum. And all the indications of what we read in the rest of chapter 4 seem positive. If Jesus hadn't made this summary statement, I would have thought things went well, that Capernaum had received him. And yet, what does he say in verse 15? You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. So let's try to figure this out. In Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31, he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And then the, the demoniac comes out, and he, he declares, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. Look at verse 36. They were amazed. So what's the first point? They were astonished and amazed at Jesus and at the power of his word. That's what Luke says clearly. 
Verse 32, they are astonished at his teaching. Verse 36, they are amazed. So, so these people who will be cast down in large part, the majority of them, to hell, were amazed and astonished at Jesus' teaching. They recognized the power and the authority of his word, and they were amazed by it. And yet they will perish. Next, we see in, in, in 440 that they believed Jesus had power and compassion to heal. It's a Sabbath day, but as soon as the Sabbath is done, verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had who any who were sick with various diseases. So this is all the people who knew anyone or had anyone in their household who was sick. This isn't just a few people. The entire town, if you knew someone or had someone who was sick, they were bringing them to Jesus as soon as the sun set down, as soon as the Sabbath ended, and every one of them was healed. Why? Not only did they recognize the power and the authority of Jesus' word and were amazed and astonished by it, these people clearly believed and expected that Jesus could and would heal all their sick, which he did. So they they had confidence, belief that he, he can heal. He has God's power to heal, and he will heal. He cares enough for us that he will heal. Look down to verse 42 and 43. Chapter 4. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. So Jesus is going to begin to move on now. He's, he's taught in their synagogues. He's healed their sick. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. They sought out Jesus to keep him from leaving. They wanted him to stay. So, so what's What's wrong? What are they lacking? They're astonished. They recognize the power and the authority of His Word. They recognize His power and His willingness to heal. They don't want Him to leave. Jesus, stay. Don't leave. And yet Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, In Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Now maybe there were some converts, some true believers from Capernaum, By and large, the city in total is going to perish. And Jesus in Luke 10 identifies the missing ingredient. There was no repentance. What we don't see any reference of in Capernaum is them recognizing and dealing with their sin. We don't see anything related to that. Here's the point. There's, There's plenty that Jesus offers that any person in their right mind would want. Who wouldn't want free food? Who wouldn't want immediate healing from all sickness and disease? Who would not want that? But again and again, what what Jesus also brings to the table, what Jesus also calls of people is what offends. His his declaration that we are all sinful, that was what offended his hometown in Nazareth as he taught them. You guys are just as sinful and have no leg up over a pagan Gentile leper like Naaman or the Syrophoenician widow. You, you've got to come to God on, on those terms, recognizing you, you don't have chips with him to spend, but that you come, as he said in the Sermon on the Plain, poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no mention of that at Capernaum. Turn, turn finally to Luke 9, 11 through 12. Luke chapter 9, 11 through 12, where we deal with Bethsaida. Okay. 
pick it up in verse 10, actually. On the return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away. Go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find a lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. This crowd not only followed Jesus, they followed Jesus out to a desolate place. And when they found him in that desolate place, they didn't leave. They didn't leave. That's the blank. So much so that the disciples are saying, enough's enough. Tell them to go home as the day wore out. These people sought out Jesus, followed him into a desolate place, and when they found him, they didn't leave. Like I said, perhaps there are some in this crowd who truly become converted, but Jesus can say of Bethsaida in verse 13, Woe to you, Bethsaida, if mighty works done in you, like perhaps this very miracle we're just reading of, the feeding of the 5,000, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. We've seen this again and again in Luke's Gospel. That saving faith, what Jesus is looking for, is something more than I like Jesus and I like his word and I want to see what he can do for me. Turn, probably the best picture we get of what Jesus is looking for, demonstrated for us, is the sinful woman in chapter 7. Just turn back to chapter 7, where Jesus really sort of explains this clearly. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, and she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And then Simon and his dinner guests get offended, and Jesus tells a parable about a certain money lender, then he applies it to this woman. Jump down to, to verse, ooh, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. When those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's a notorious sinner willing to recognize her sin. What is she treasuring about Christ? That her sins have been forgiven. What she's got her eye on is not the benefits Jesus can give apart from dealing with sin. She's aware of her sin. The whole community is aware of her sin. And she knows that her sins have been forgiven so her heart overflows in love. Here's a woman who has focused on and dealt with her sin, brought her sin to Jesus, been forgiven. These towns were excited about Jesus, the miracle caterer. They were unrepentant and unwilling to deal with their sin. That's the only way to explain this. So not a negative word in Capernaum of Jesus' ministry. It all looks good. It all looks promising. And those things that I've listed can and are frequently elements of saving faith. A, a desire to, to, to find out Jesus. Don't, don't leave being astonished and amazed, recognizing the power of his word. That's good. Believing that he's compassionate and powerful. But Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 9, probably most clearly, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There it is. Self-denial, cross-bearing, following after Jesus. Like Levi, who left everything and followed Jesus. Like Peter and the fishermen, who left everything and followed Jesus. Okay, one final point then. How one responds to Christ's ambassadors is how one responds to Christ and also his Father. That's the last point Jesus makes in verse 16 as he sends out the 72. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Two points I want to make quickly here. First, asking questions, actually not even points. How do we respond to Christ's ministers? Ambassadors, whatever word you want to put in there. How do we respond to that? Because this is all about delegated authority, right? Jesus himself is sending them out ahead of them. He's not entering into those towns immediately. They are. And yet he makes the link clear how one responds to them is how they respond to him. Okay? Jesus has tasked others to do And by ministers, I don't mean me in particular. I mean Christians doing ministry, Christians functioning properly. Christians, say, for instance, carrying out the Great Commission. We heard about this last week. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So wherever Christians are, are calling on people to be disciples of Jesus Christ, they are commissioned and functioning under that commission, speaking for the Lord. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 last week that, that when we rightly preach the gospel, who is the one pleading and speaking through us? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. No, whenever Christians are properly functioning in their ministry, speaking God's word to others. This same principle of how you deal with them is how you deal with God applies. So I just want to stop and ask, how do, you, how do you deal with a brother or sister calling on you to repentance of some sin in your life, exhorting you with some truth? How, how do you respond? How do I respond? Those people God raises up because the same principle of how you respond to them is how you respond to Jesus is how you respond to the Father applies. In, in Acts chapter 9, when the risen Lord appears to Paul, who does he say Paul has been persecuting? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because what Saul is doing to those Christians, he is doing to the Lord. That same principle of representation applies. How we treat, how we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ speaking the word of truth to us is again how we respond to the Lord, which is why there's such an emphasis in the New Testament on the unity of the church because Paul can say, is Christ divided? Now, it's, it's unthinkable that we can be right with God and not right with our brothers and sisters because they bear his image. First John 4.20 makes that clear. And finally, I'm going to ask this question. How do we respond to Christ's word. How do we respond to Christ's word? 
1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 8, Paul says this. Again, the Scripture again and again making it clear how you deal not just with Christ's ministers is how you deal with Him, but how you deal with Christ's Word is how you deal with Him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. It's Paul about what he's writing. Disregard God's word, you disregard God. He gives his Holy Spirit to you. Or more remarkably yet, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, you've got to pay attention sometimes to how verses get introduced. He introduces a quotation of Psalm 95 by saying in Hebrews 3, 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today if you hear his voice. Because again and again, the Bible makes it clear that when God's word is read, God is speaking. So, so that's, that's the principle that's raised up. We saw last week, God has offered peace. He's got a free offer of peace on the table to all who want it, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who all who are poor in spirit. But hearing that message of peace raises our responsibility and our culpability. And sitting day in and day out, week in and week out, under God's word, raises our culpability. If there are any here who reject this, who, who superficially accept this, understand it'll be worse for you on the day of judgment than for any unbeliever outside. The offer is there on the table that Christ is calling. Christ is calling. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments. And it's a picture of Christ giving himself for us and us feeding off of him. And that offer is still there that you can come, you can have Christ. But understand that the tremendous culpability you share for hearing God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for this message of forgiveness and salvation. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would not let us hear in vain that we would respond in genuine faith and repentance, that we would respond rightly, that we would be able to rejoice that our names are written in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.